Good evening and welcome to Straight Talk. We have a very special edition of our show tonight featuring a distinguished speaker who is here appearing at Cal State Long Beach. I'll be talking with syndicated columnist and author Arianna Huffington about the impact of the new media on politics. Stay with us for this fascinating conversation. Opinions expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect the views of Charter Communications nor its sponsors. We recognize our obligation to present opposing points of view by responsible spokespersons. For information, please contact the director of program. She stands in the face of evil and will not lose hope or faith. America, the land of freedom, is still the home of the brave. So raise the banner, call the glory, let us join our fellow man. Straight Talk is brought to you in part by Southern California Edison. For over 100 years, life powered by Edison. The Press-Telegram, your local news leader for over 100 years. And Long Beach Magazine. Coastal living, city style. Join us for tonight's edition of Straight Talk. And now your host, Art Levine. I'm Art Levine, Professor of Ethics and Legal Studies from the College of Business Administration. Our guest today is Arianna Huffington. Ms. Huffington is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post and a nationally syndicated columnist. She has authored 13 books, most recently, Third World America, about the decline of the middle class. She's a true pioneer in the use of the new media and has one of the most frequently cited media brands on the internet. Ms. Huffington is here as part of the CSULB Distinguished Speaker Series. Welcome to Cal State Long Beach, Ariana. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Art. We're delighted that you're here, and uh, the topic uh, of your address here on campus is politics and the new media. I know from my own experience that uh, the new media has changed everything, and uh, you know we're a little show here, but our mm -hmm. signal is viewable all over the country. We're not CBS, but the word can get out. So, so there's a sense of democratization of the media with the, with, with the internet. Oh, absolutely. It um, really has changed everything. You know, you used to be able to um, express your opinions and have a platform only if you're a big name or if you owned the printing presses. And now you can have a voice and you can break through the, strati the static if you have something to say that resonates with people. So the little guy or gal can, who has something to say can get his or her voice heard without being Rupert Murdoch. Exactly. And, you know, the, the use of social media 
Facebook, Twitter, uh, sharing what you have to say with others has also revolutionized everything. You know, Will I Am recently said that people used to consume news sitting on the couch and now they consume news galloping on a horse. Wow. You know, they don't just consume it. They want to pass it on, to share it, to um, add something to it. And, and that's what has been so difficult for many in the mainstream media to understand. They're asking, you know, why are people um, updating Wikipedia entries for free? Why are they um, adding things on their Facebook walls for free? Why are they blogging for the Huffington Post for free? And the truth is that self-expression for many people has become the new entertainment. You know, nobody asks why are people sitting on the couches watching bad TV for free? But um, that's changed. People are much more engaged in what they're doing. And this is a healthy thing for a democracy. I think it's incredibly healthy. Like with every um, new stage in our evolution, there are problems. I think the biggest problem is um, the people who hide behind anonymity yeah. to vent, to, um, to go for ad hominem attacks, basically to just completely um, screw up the conversation. And that's why at the Huffington Post, we are very particular that we don't allow that. You know, we have not just the most advanced technology we can get to filter through comments, but we also have 30 human comment moderators. Wow. whose job is to make sure that technology is working or that they catch the things that technology didn't catch. And, you know, there are mistakes, but last month we had three and a half million comments. My God. One of the uh, challenges, of course, is finding the funds to uh, create the good content. I've always believed that content is king, and I think that ultimately will be true in the web as, as elsewhere. Uh, uh, many websites are what they call repeaters, and they don't originate stuff, but they take it from somewhere else and link it. Uh, yours, I know, has a lot of original stuff, and yet content is expensive to create, and I think ultimately people will be asked to and will pay for content of a site that they believe in. Well, here's what I believe. I believe that we are now living in the linked economy. In linked. Linked economy. And links are very valuable. And links can be monetized. So Links can be, be monetized. monetized. There's a value to links. I got to think. Go ahead. Well, here's what's happened. Let's say you uh, write an article for the New York Times, and we want to link to it from yes. the Huffington Post. That will basically drive more traffic to the New York Times that the New York Times can monetize. And as long as the aggregators or the curators are following fair use laws and they don't accept more than what is allowed by the law. But a link, a link means you, you, the whole article. Yes, but sometimes well, you can take a, a paragraph and to uh, basically introduce your readers to what the article is about, or you can link out directly, you know, either. Uh, can be is that valuable to practice. the New York Times Incredibly. to have a one-paragraph reference about the article? Well, provided with a it, of course it is. Yes, we get hundreds of requests every day 
from mainstream media to link to their stories because it's incredibly valuable. Um, now, in our case, you know, we do three things. We do this kind of aggregation slash curation. Um, we have original reporters. And um, now that we've become profitable this year, we are adding to our reporting I team. saw that you got Howard Feynman, we who, got Howard uh, who Feynman. is uh, uh, one of my favorites. We got Peter Goodman from the New York Times, who's become our business editor. Now, does, that doesn't mean that they're leaving the other publication, but they're also adding... Oh, no, they're to, leaving. They're the leaving. Publications. Yes. They're leaving... Howard Feynman is now full-time with the Huffington Post. Really? He left Newsweek. Uh, Peter well, let Goodman. me just cut to the chase. At some point, uh, with Howard Feynman's and that like that 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 are right at the top of their craft, it costs money to do that. Uh, won't you, at some point down the line, ask your viewers to maybe pay a dollar a week or a dollar a month, and you have 25 million unique visitors a month, and if you get just half of them, that's not a bad cash flow. Okay, let me give you an absolutely unequivocal answer. Yes. Never. Okay, Never. you heard it here. <laughs> you will not have to pay to visit the Huffington Post. Never. Our, our business plan uh, is entirely advertising-based. Okay. So it's basically the bringing in advertisers, bringing in sponsors, bringing in sponsor-generated content. There are many new ways to bring in advertising on the site, but we're never going to go behind paywalls. Wonderful. Why do you think that the cutting edge use of the media, of the web, like Huffington Post, is not being done by newspapers, who all now have websites, but by others like yourself? Well, one of the reasons is precisely the question you asked. A lot of newspapers are trying to have it both ways. They want to put some of their content behind paywalls. They don't quite understand um, how news consumption has changed, how habits have changed. And uh, also, we are, for example, mixing it up. We are having very established reporters like Howard or like Peter Goodman from the New York Times. And we also have young reporters. In fact, one of the things that we are going to accelerate is hiring um, young journalists um, right after they graduate, either journalism schools or, um, you know, Yale. In fact, we just hired somebody who was the Good choice. arts editor at the Yale Daily News. He just graduated last year. This is his first job. He's fantastic. You know, there is incredible You have an affinity for young people, don't you? I can Absolutely. just see it. In, you know, in that it. wouldn't happen at the New York Times because they would want you to have a paid your dues, so to speak, you know, yeah. to have uh, gone and worked uh, in other papers. We yeah. really believe that there are so many talented young people um, who have done, actually, great journalism with their school newspapers, and we'd love them to come on. In fact, if anybody's listening, we are hiring. <laughs> that, and we'll put, uh, we'll, we'll tell you how to get a hold yes. of Ariana at the end of the, the show, but uh, you heard it spontaneously from our guest. Well, you know, uh, this, there's so many implications of the new media, and in the next segment we're going to focus on the, the political use of it, but you are also an author, and you just came out September 7th with your 13th book, Third World America. Briefly tell us about uh, the decline of the middle class here in America. Well, obviously this is a very startling title because we're not yet Third World America. The reason I picked that title 
is because I wanted to sound an alarm while there is still time to course correct. Yes. And um, right now we can still avoid the iceberg hitting the Titanic. But the, the trajectory we are on is a very dangerous one. And there are many um, data I can point out to, including our crumbling infrastructure that would turn us into a third world country. But the really significant um, decline is the decline of the middle class. Yeah. And the gap between the wealthy and the poor, the, the discrepancy between the average CEO wage and the average worker that used to be 30 or 40 to one is now a thousand to one. Uh, it, it, it's, right. a, it's a real it's like, danger. It's like uh, um, amazing what has happened in the last 30 years. This didn't just happen because of the recent almost financial meltdown. Yeah. Uh, this sort of decline started in 1980. And um, through successive administrations, Republican and Democrat, uh, it really continued. And right now, we have something which is very un-American, which is that upward mobility for millions of Americans has become downward mobility. And upward mobility has always been at the heart of the American dream. That the kids live better than the parents. Exactly. And, and now they can't that you, afford the yeah, house. And they yeah, can't. now you have two-thirds of Americans in a recent survey who said that they expect their children to be worse off than yeah. they are. And in, if you look at um, international data, we are 10th in our So mobility. why is that? Well, what has happened is that through special interest buying public policy, we basically deregulated um, a lot of the practices, you know, mortgage companies, credit card companies, or we basically... Laissez-faire. Yeah, or we allowed um, the regulators to be captured by the regulated, because yeah. that's another problem. And Fannie and Freddie had regulators. They yes. had entire agencies regulating them. Yeah. But they were not really regulating them. We saw the same thing around the BP oil spill. They had regulators. The mining disaster. Asleep at the switch. Asleep at the switch. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating, and uh, it has profound political implications. And in the next segment of our show, we're going to ask Ariana her analysis of what this all means for politics and get her take on the midterm elections that are coming up and also on the Obama administration. You won't want to miss the rest of this show. Electricity is different from any other product we use. We can't store it. We must use it wisely, but can't do without it completely. And there's no substitute for this special form of energy that brings us light, comfort, and progress. That's why California needs new standards that can keep utilities strong, guard against another power crisis, and protect consumers from the kind of shortages that often affect other commodities. Because electricity is different. When the Port of Long Beach employs more people for new projects and construction workers for improvements, it has a positive effect for local businesses like my restaurant, Las Islitas. The port keeps the whole community busy. <laughs> Especially our cook, Jorge. <laughs> the Port of Long Beach. Investing in jobs, investing in you. We are back. Continuing our conversation, fascinating conversation with Arianna Huffington, who's here at California State University, Long Beach, as our speaker for the fourth annual Distinguished Speaker Series program. And we want to focus now on the subject of 
her presentation on campus, Politics and the New Media. This revolution really has had profound impact on politics and spell it out as you see it. Well, first of all, we see something that we could not have imagined before, which is politicians being able to go directly to the people through social media. Uh, Sarah Palin actually has been a master at this. Uh, she doesn't need to do interviews. She can just update um, her status on, 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 her, um, on her Facebook uh, profile. She can Twitter. Uh, she now also, on top of it, um, has a reality show happening out in Alaska, you know, Sarah's Alaska. So the social media used by politicians, again, can be used for good or for bad. She can post something about death panels in the healthcare legislation, which is completely untrue. I get dear Arthur emails from the President of the United States. Now, I don't know, I know he's not writing to me personally, but still, that connection... And of course, the Obama administration used the media so effectively in their campaign, did they not? Oh, yes, they they really wrote the book on yeah. it. They wrote the book, and they also were able to, to do what the Howard Dean campaign was not able to do, which is to translate the viral into the actual, you know, to take what was happening, the activity that was happening online, and actually use it to raise real money. Real money and yes. real people knocking on doors. And real, real people knocking on doors. And, and I remember when I was in Chicago visiting the Obama campaign, and um, I had asked to meet with Chris Hughes, who had come from Facebook to run their digital campaign. And I was meeting him at a hotel, and I was waiting, I thought, and waiting, and 20 minutes passed, and it suddenly dawned on me that the kid sitting at that table uh. was <laughs> that I thought he was waiting for his parents. <laughs> was Chris Hughes. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. They brought in people who really knew what they were doing. I wrote them an email after they won suggesting, I mean, dumb me that they need this, that they should continue that personal touch as part of the administration, which, of course, they have. And, I mean, getting personal letters from the President of the United States, personal emails, you know, it's kind of touching. But they haven't really continued in the way it worked during the campaign. You know, they, they put it all um, under the auspices of the DNC. Um, and so it became much more rote and bureaucratic. And, you know, it, it has been ramped up now that the president is uh, campaigning for his fellow Democrats. They ran a much better campaign than many feel uh, the first two years of the administration has been. Yes, I, I write in, in Third World America that they went from the audacity of hope and what David Plouff, his campaign manager, called the audacity to win to the timidity of governing. Wow. Because, you know, the, it's ironic that his opponents are, are um, basically claiming that he has been uh, very radical, but he has not. He has been... Uh, in the end, very cautious in terms of tackling the biggest crisis we're facing, which is joblessness. He has a, a, a incredible training as a lawyer from Harvard and all, but he has a tendency to try and bring everyone together, which often means splitting the differences rather than, and whatever you think of Ronald Reagan, there were certain core principles that he stood for and you could go with them or not go with them, but you knew where he was. A lot of people have trouble identifying just what are the core principles of the president. 
Well, you're absolutely right. I think it's great to bring everybody together, but you can't bring everybody together if you're not clear about what direction you're going towards. And, um, you know, we saw that during every major struggle in this country, whether it was the Emancipation Proclamation or the 19th Amendment or the Civil Rights uh, struggle, you know, you, you could not come together until people were willing to accept certain core principles. Yes. And he's faced with a moment of truth on this gaze in the military because he has to decide whether or not to appeal it as an administration. The, the federal judge said it's unconstitutional, and if he doesn't appeal it, then it stays. But if he appeals it because he wants to wait for Congress to do it, it, it gets muddied. Well, it does get muddy, and very often it gets particularly muddy when uh, the White House is hyper-concerned about how what they do is going to be used by the opposition. We're seeing that in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We're seeing that um, in our policy in Afghanistan. You know, No Democrat wants to be soft on national security. Exactly, but, that is, but it's really tragic to be making um, war and peace decisions based on uh, how the opposition is going to Do you think he, the, the administration well, is? You know, you have Bob Woodward in his new book who said the president is psychologically, that was his term, out of Afghanistan. What does that mean? You know, how can you be psychologically out of a war that's ongoing where young men and women are being killed and where we are spending $2.8 billion a week? And that to me is stunning at a time when our local governments are cutting schools and services and, and when we need to do nation building here at home. Yeah. Well, uh, we could have uh, rebuilt every school in America for uh, one, one year's cost of the war. Yes, and we could, have, we could have rebuilt a lot of schools for what we spent bailing out Wall Street. <laughs> Give us your take on the gubernatorial and senatorial races here in California. Well, the gubernatorial race um, seems to, to be less of a toss-up than it was a few weeks ago. It seems that Cherry Brown is now ahead by eight points. Um, the Senate race is more of a toss-up. And I think a lot will depend on turnout, who comes out to vote, and also on um, how much of the wave that has been uh, going Republicans way, continues to go Republicans you way. You know, Sacramento is totally dysfunctional, and everyone knows that gerrymandered districts and the whole litany, and the Democrats really deserve to be thrown out wholesale for this mess. Our credit rating is down at the bottom and everything, but Democrats are going to win. It's a Democratic state, and maybe they made the mess. Maybe they can fix it. Uh, there's a new commercial out for Jerry Brown called Twins that is absolutely devastating, and... Uh, uh, it's making the, the internet circuit. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get your message out. You don't have to spend $120 million. No, you just need a lot of creativity. Yeah. And then something can go viral and it's perfect. How, tell us a little bit about Ariana. I mean, you, you've, you, you were born in Greece, you went to England, you went to Cambridge, you were president of the Debating Society, you've written 13 books. You've created a pioneering website. Uh, where do you get your energy from? Where did this all come from? <laughs> well, I'm very blessed that I love what I'm doing. I feel very grateful that um, I don't really separate my work from my life. You know, I, I love There's my a work. saying that maybe you'd agree with, that if you love what you do, 
You'll never work a day in your oh, life. Oh, I love that. That's how I feel. I feel that it's a real blessing to, to be able to call work what you actually love to do. And with the Huffington Post now, it's, um, it's really a great opportunity to have a, a, a platform, a vehicle that we can use to have some real impact on what's happening. Would it be an extreme to call it that you feel like you're on a mission? Well, you know, I feel I'm, I'm a, bit on a, a bit on a mission. And um, I feel that I'm as, an, as an immigrant to this country, I feel really grateful for what this country has given me. Yes. There's no other country I would rather live in. I have two daughters who were born here. And uh, I feel that this is an opportunity for us to really um, have a bit of a value reset about what we value, what matters to us. And as we are moving into this new epoch, you know, John Asalk used to talk about moving from Epoch A, which was based on competition and survival, to Epoch B, which is based on collaboration and meaning. So as we are moving in that direction, we have incredible opportunities to become more connected with each other and more creative about everything we do. Have you found that the younger generation, I forget whether it's X or Y or Z these days, but are much more attuned to community and helping and less of the avaricious? Absolutely, but also I find all across America, so I've been um, crisscrossing the country, first researching the book, then um, on my book tour. Selling the book. First researching, <laughs> first then research selling. Then you yes. sell it. And in both instances, you know, it's been amazing to see how much creativity and compassion has been unleashed. And often, you know, when people are in trouble, you see what they're made yes. of, and we're seeing that. Some of the best, you know, this Chile minor story was yes. so moving. The country came together. They spared no expense to save these 33 miners. The president was there uh, hugging. It, it was a, it reminded me almost of Apollo 13. I know, you're so moon. right about that. And, but these are also reminders of what we are made of, what human beings are made of, which so often we forget because um, people sometimes crumble at the slightest difficulty. Or they rise to the occasion, or as they an rise example. To the occasion, yeah. So maybe existentially that explains why the good Lord gives us these problems so that we can rise to, mm -hmm. to address them. Let me mention the book again, Third World America, uh, Ariana's 13th book. So she must be doing something right. Uh, we, we Coming down to the last two minutes, what closing thoughts would you like to leave our, our viewers with about the future and... Uh, society and, and well I suppose my parting thought is that even though the book is called third world America and even though I'm sounding the alarm about the decline of the middle class I really profoundly believe and I lay that out in section five so if you only have time to read one section section five it is the solution section so I I argue that all around the country people are doing amazing things you know they are creating their own jobs, yes. often by using social media, going to Etsy.com or Bonanza.com. It's stunning what's happening. And then they're actually turning to what they have in abundance. You know, they may not have a job, but they may have time on their hands or skills they're not using. So you have lawyers coming together to help people avoid foreclosure. You have an unemployed concierge I write about in Portland, Oregon, who started a site called We've Got Time to Help.org. Wow and bringing together unemployed people, helping people in need. 
There is no deeper satisfaction than helping others. I mean, I, I grew up very spoiled and self-indulged, and it took me a lot of time to work my way out of that. But uh, <laughs> thank God I did. But, well, thank you so much thank for joining so much. us. Thank you for coming to the campus of California State University, Long Beach, to address both the students and the community uh, on, on your work and uh, on your theme. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on our show here. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Well, we want to thank uh, Ariana again for joining us and uh, thank you at home for watching. Uh, please be with us again. Good night. Straight Talk has been brought to you by Southern California Edison, The Press Telegram, and Long Beach Magazine. And remember, Straight Talk is viewable worldwide 24-7 at straighttalktv.com.